We have been, as Tom said, and as most of you know, we've been in Genesis. By the way, I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, it really is. It's good to be with you. I've, I need this. I need this. I need this regular rhythm of grace in my life. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I hope, I hope that you, uh, if this is your first time or hundredth time or maybe more, I hope that you feel welcome into this family in the name of Christ. Um, we have been in Genesis 1 through 3 since the beginning of January, this whole spring, and we'll be really, actually, this is our last week in Genesis 1 through 3. We'll spend the next week or two in Genesis 4, um, and then we'll take a week or two to, to sort of look at how Gen- the first few chapters of the Bible shoot us all the way to Messiah, and then we'll hit Palm Sunday together. So I hope that that um, works. I think it will. And you know, it just so happens in God's providence and in a bit of our planning that we started um, the beginning of Lent last week and we jumped into Genesis 3. And so just a time to focus on, you know, God made everything beautiful and wonderful and perfect and good. And then he made us human beings to, to have charge over his good creation. And then in Genesis 3, quickly, We've read the past couple of weeks how there's a, we fall. Our, our, our forebears, our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's command, broke it, and everything given to them, all, all, all the dominion, all the creation that was put under their feet, as it were, cracked and was affected and fell because of their rebellion. And so we, we've looked at that a bit. And so um, what I want to do is just obviously, like Tom just read, finish out this last bit of Genesis 3 where we're, we're sort of at the tail end of the repercussions of the fall and, and really just kind of tell some stories today um, and sort of gather everything up. And I don't know that I've done this so, so much in this sermon series. If you're with us in the nine o'clock class, I've done it a lot more. I'm teaching a class through the whole Bible in which I'm talking about how the whole Bible comes out of Genesis 1 through 3. So I wanna really elucidate that today and sort of touch on Adam and Eve, as a consequence of the fall, being driven out of this paradise God put them in, and how we have a sense of being driven out and kept outside of what we were meant to be inside of. It resonates in us our whole lives. One of the things that uh, I mentioned last week, actually, I believe, is C.S. Lewis, whom if you're with us for any amount of time, you'll hear about, and from constantly, he, wrote, uh, he actually wrote a, a memorial address to King's College London Uh, in 1944, near the end of the Second World War, that he titled The Inner Ring. And he talks in The Inner Ring so poignantly about one of the major factors that that actually haunts and drives and powers our broken lives. And that is this desire. It's an unwritten, there are no rules that you can read about anywhere, but it's this this set of unwritten rules that... um, defines these, these rings of people, these clubs, these exclusive clubs of people throughout the world. They can be based on any sort of thing. And our desire and our drive all of our lives is to get in to those inner rings. And, and as part of that, to keep others out once we're in. And it's this desire and I'll bring up some of what he says a bit later, but it's this desire in us, even if we've never put our finger on it or articulated it, that um, we, we know that we're on the outside, peering in, as it were, through the glass of where we wanna be. And, and so much of what powers us in our lives is we will do whatever it takes to get into 
that inner ring that says to me that I have worth. And so we have this real sense of being expelled and, and we're told here why. In short, this text, this short text that Tom read, this end of Genesis 3, before we get into Genesis 4, which is a complete unraveling because of the fall, a complete unraveling of humanity. Um, we, have, we see that Adam and Eve were driven out of this place that God made for them uh, and they were barred from getting back in. And so it gives, us, it gives us an answer as to why we feel that way um, in life. It seems harsh. It seems almost petty. The fact that God's like, hey, if they, if they eat, let's, let's kick them out of the garden. And I believe, believe that God's speaking within the Trinity uh, when he says this, Let, uh, lest they become like us. And lest they take of the tree of life, which was another tree, in addition to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, which presumably they had not taken from yet, lest they take of this tree and live forever, let's kick them out. It almost seems petty. It almost seems like God's being jealous and cruel, but actually there's good evidence for, and many commentators agree that it's a severe mercy, that if Adam and Eve had taken of that tree of life, they would have locked themselves into this state outside of grace into the state of just perpetual rebellion against God. And so we have some hints of that in what God does afterwards, but also inside of this, how God covers them. I mentioned this last week with um, um, the hide of an animal, a leather skin. It doesn't explicitly say that he killed an animal, but we can conjecture that that might well have been what happened, that something innocent died to cover them and their shame and their sin temporarily. And it was a gesture of the fact that blood has to be spilled for the guilty to continue to walk with God, even outside of paradise, even outside of this place that they were made for. And so they, he covers them. He's still a loving God who, as we talked about last week, goes after them, not by wiping the plate clean and, and killing them, but by saying, death has now entered into you intellectually, emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every way, but I'm going to come to you, step into the middle of the curse with a promise and beckon you to me with questions and have you see, I'm gonna speak truth into your brokenness to get you to see that you have broken tryst with me, but I'm still in the middle of that gonna offer a promise, which takes us to Jesus. So then today we just see, um, we see that God in his severe mercy keeps them from going after what they would have otherwise to lock, would have locked them probably into this state of just being in perpetual rebellion against him. Um, so it seems harsh, um, but there's also a sense in which it says specifically, if you look at, if you look at verse 23, it says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken and then in verse 24, it repeats, it says the same thing, but in much more emphatic language. It says, he drove out the man. So there's a, there's a purposefulness. It's not just a severe mercy. It's a holy God in his righteous anger against his children who have rebelled against him, um, driving them out of this place that he's made for them. It's a sentence, it's a sentence that we all deserve and worse against our rebellion and sin. We can't be in his presence. We spoiled what God's made us for. Um, in this translation, which is a good translation, God doesn't even finish the sentence. It says, um, 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And it's kind of like a dot, dot, dot. Um, and that's actually exactly what happens in the Hebrew. It's called aposiopesis, and it's just a literary device. And it's very rarely, 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 rarely in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible does God's speech get cut off like that. So it's, it's, it's like he's so determined to act quickly and decisively against rebellious humanity to push them out of this garden in his mercy, yes, but also in his holiness and in his goodness and in his hatred of their sin. It conveys the speed and certainty with which God carries out this sentence. He drove out humanity, the man and the woman. It's also later used, and this is kind of what I want to camp out on uh, for almost the rest of our time and then take you to a much more hopeful place. Um, But it's also used later in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible of God driving out, same verb in the Hebrew. Again, everything comes back to these first three chapters of God driving out the enemies of Israel out of the land of Canaan. Um, He drives the enemies of Israel out. So there's a sense in which, hey, get this, God who made us for his pleasure to know him intimately and to be fully satisfied in him, to have peace with him and peace with one another as we just celebrated in Christ, that's what we're made for. But because of sin and rebellion, we're outside of God, we're outside of ourselves as it were, we're outside of knowing one another and everything is wrong and we're just always on the outside looking in with this sense of being driven, driven out. Um, But God is, in a sense, even though he's covered them with his mercy, they have become enemies. Humanity has become enemies by their own just deserts, we have become enemies of God. Hey, the rest of the Old Testament is a playing out of this fact. God in his mercy continues to make a people for himself, but time and time again, they make themselves enemies of God and flout, flout him. So, so what I wanna camp out on for the next few minutes is the way in which, um, the way in which this garden scene in Genesis 1 through 3 plays out for the rest of the Old Testament, okay? Um, so let's just, let's just recount for a few minutes what, what's happened so far. You've been with us for the past few weeks since January. God makes all things. And within all things, he makes this special land for his people, this, this garden land. And he makes as the crown of his creation man and woman, humanity. And he places them in this garden land. And he gives them his law, his word for relationship so that they can obey him and know him and his word to keep. And he says, this is the key to life. And what do they do? Quickly within the narrative of the Old Testament in chapter two, in chapter three rather, they're given the law in chapter two and in chapter three, they break it. They break it. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. Relationship with God's been severed. And so they break the law of God. And because of that, he has to kick them out for their own good, right? So they don't get locked into rebellion against him. He kicks them east out of this place, this garden place that he made for them. What we see, and this is a great simplification, but I don't think it's simplistic and I think it's true. What we see from Genesis 4 all the way through the last prophet Malachi up until the coming of Messiah is this repeated. God makes the people for himself again. He puts them in a garden land. He makes a people for himself out of Abraham. He calls him out of Ur. And he says, I'm going to make a people from you out of nothing, as it were. When you're 100 and your wife's 90 and she's barren. 
and he makes a people for himself and he puts them in this garden land. It's described all over the place in the Bible as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's Edenic language. And he puts them in this Eden, recreated, and he blesses them and he says, obey my word, hold to it. He says this in Joshua 1. He says this in Psalm 1. He says this over and over again. Obey my word, it's the key to life. I, I made you to know me. I want the world to know me and that I made all of humanity to know me through, the, through our relationship. And that is through obedience. I'm, your, I'm a good father. Trust me, obey me. What do they do? The whole story of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 onwards is a story of Israel, God's people put in this garden land, giving God's law at Sinai, breaking God's law. Even before Moses comes down from the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf. It never changes all the way through Malachi, and we do the same. We're constantly trying to get into that inner ring ourselves by saying, this is the thing that's going to make me happy, and I'm going to go after that. Uh, This is going to identify me. Work, another person, pleasure, you name it. We're trying to get back in. It's what drives us. It's what drove Israel. We're idolaters. We are, as John Calvin said, we are idol factories. We are broken on the inside, and the world is broken because of our brokenness, right? So that's what we see here. Israel breaks God's law, and what happens? God kicks them out of this garden land, out of Cain and out of the promised land. Which direction? East. Just like he moves Adam and Eve, drives them out of the land, he drives not only Israel's enemies, but eventually Israel, just as he promised he would if they disobeyed him, east to where? To Babylon, right? They come out of Egypt into the promised land, and he drives them east to Babylon in the exile. But even at the end of the Old Testament, there's a promise of Messiah coming, and through him, grace. I will bring you back, and I will make of you a people for myself, and I will give you a new heart whose law is, my law will be written on your new heart. It won't just be on tablets anymore, okay? And so, um, also, let's talk for just a couple minutes on the cherubim, the cherubim. I have a, there's someone right now in the congregation, he's a member, and he, one of his pet peeves is when he sees the, the, the little cherubs, the little fat, little baby fatties, you know, with the flying with the little wings and the, the bow and arrow and the hearts. They're like on Valentine's cards. And so he's like, man, cherub in Hebrew, cherub, means burning ones. Okay, seraph, seraphim and the cherubim. These were terrifying creatures. They had a flaming sword that went every which way to bar humanity back in, to come back in and take from the tree of life, back into this place that they were created for. Okay, they are not squeezable, lovey, creatures, they are terrifying. They are the guardians that God places there. There's, it's, we are unable by our own efforts to get back into the place that we were made for. That's the point I want to land. Adam and Eve couldn't do it by their own resources. Israel couldn't do it, God's own people. By our own resources, we cannot do it. Um, but the cherubim, the, the cherub, the cherubs, they, um, Israel sort of in so many ways, ways I just recounted, but in so many ways too, sort of recounts this garden scene. So one of them is the tabernacle, which is the, the movable temple, the place where God's people worship him through sacrifice. Something innocent has to die so that I can be in God's presence. But then the tabernacle becomes a fixed place in Jerusalem, right? The temple that Solomon builds and that David prepares for. And so in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, there are 
the whole temple looks like a cosmos, looks like a mini universe. It's like a recreation event. But also inside the temple, there's all sorts of ornate garden imagery. So it's like a garden too. So it's a, again, it's a recreation of what God originally intended. And, and, it's, and it's Israel coming into his presence through sacrifice. But in the middle of the temple complex, only the priests, only certain priests can go in there. And there's this one place that only one priest once a year, exactly according to God's word, can go. And if he breaks God's word at all, he dies because God's presence, we're so alienated from God and his presence, except through exact obedience to his word and through blood shed and shed, innocent blood shed and shed and shed. But on the wall, as it were, it was a thick curtain that was like six inches or a foot wide that separated the priest and what he did daily from the Holy of Holies, where the high priest went once a year into God's presence, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. On that wall, guess what there were embroidered on the wall? On the curtain. Cheruvim. Two cherubs, okay, that were, as it were, barring the way into God's presence that we were created for, right? And then once you get through that curtain once a year as a high priest, guess what is over the mercy seat where God comes in through the blood of an innocent lamb that's sacrificed and meets with that high priest and through that high priest as a representative with all of his people. Two cheruvim, covering with, with wings that are covering their eyes because even they can't look at God, okay? And so over and over again, Israel is giving us a picture of the fact that we can be with God, but it's tenuous. We're constantly rebelling and it requires the death of an innocent one. But it's, this, it's these shadows. It's these shadows. Um, okay, so that's, that is Israel sort of giving us another picture of how God wants to be with us, but it's a, uh, we are outcasts. And eventually Israel, just like Adam and Eve, is cast out of the land. Okay, so that's how the Old Testament ends. That's our being cast out. Now let's talk about reentry. Let's talk about the hopeful part. Why we as humans are always trying to get in and then what God has done about healing that ancient wound. Um, let me start this, this section just by telling you a story. It's a story that almost all of you know. It's a story about a father and two sons. And it's a story that really encapsulates all of this and, and, takes us into, and takes us into what we need, the healing of that wound. And it's a story about a father that Jesus tells. Um, and he has two sons, and one of the sons is a misfit, and he wishes his father dead. And he, and he says, give me, I'm not gonna wait for you to die. I want my, the father's wealthy. He says, I want my inheritance now, and so give it to me now. In other words, he's saying, I wish you were dead. And so the father breaks up his estate, which is a huge act of shame on the father, and it hurts him financially. And he gives presumably a third of that estate to the younger son, he liquidates. And the son goes off and he just continues to flout his father by leaving his home, which you didn't do in those times. It wasn't the same as today. You don't, you don't go on a college trip to Europe. If you leave home, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be with the family and work the estate and make it bigger. He leaves his family and he goes to a far off land outside of the land of Israel. And he lives a wild life. And in every way that he's living, he's not only searching for meaning, but he's saying it's not found in relationship with my father. And he ends up squandering all of his wealth through wild living, which all of us can probably identify with, although maybe not all. And there's another son, don't worry. And he gets to the place where he has nothing left. 
And Jesus' story at this point, there's a turning point. It says, and then when he has absolutely nothing left, verse 17 of Luke 15 is where you find it. It says, he came to his senses. Get this. When he's at the bottom of the barrel and has nothing left to hold on to is when he finally wakes up and, as it were, cries out to God. And the fact that God is so humble that he would actually be willing to be the last thing that we go to when nothing else is working, when all the wheels have fallen off, says something amazing about his character. This, this young son wakes up, comes to his senses, and goes home. And he has a speech prepared. He's like, hey, I'm just going to be your servant. Is that okay? The father is under no obligation to take the son back. By, on the contrary, culturally, he's under an obligation to move him aside and to say, get out of here. You've shamed me. I want nothing to do with you. You've pronounced me dead. On the contrary, the son has his prepared speech and he comes home. And while he's still a long way off, Jesus says, the father has been scanning the horizon, presumably, because when he's still a dot on the horizon, this figure that was once, uh, that was once noble uh, is no longer noble because he's hiked up his skirt and he's running. And in the Middle East, you didn't, as a Middle Eastern patriarch, as a father figure, you did not run, especially toward a son who has flouted you, wished you dead, and squandered your, your estate. He, run, he hikes up his robes and he runs out to meet this son and he throws his arms around him and he cuts off his speech and he says, you were dead and now you're alive. Come home, come home. And he throws a party for him. He throws a party for him. Um, and there's an elder brother that has obeyed the rules all of his life. He's the other son. And he feels like he's been treated as a slave, but he is also told by the father, you too have everything through an inheritance, not through what you've earned, but because of who I am, because you're my son. Why don't you come in and join the party? Um, but this is a story that Jesus tells that really encapsulates this whole sense of being cast out. We are all in the place, whether the older son or the younger son, of being outside of the party and being outside of the father's house and being in a place where the father made us to know him and to love him, but we have squandered our inheritance. And we are, we are in this place. Adam was in this place. Israel was in this place. We are in this place. Humans are in this place. And Jesus says, the father has come to run out to meet you and to bring you in. The thing about this story, though, is that, um, is that <clears throat> the, and this is something that Tim Keller shows beautifully in The Prodigal God, but in this culture, it was, the, it was the responsibility of the older son to go out and to get his younger brother. And what Jesus is doing as he's telling this is he's saying, I am shit. Because we don't see the father in the gospels, in the New Testament, in this story of, of history that we get and redemption that we get in the Bible. We don't see the father running out to meet us. Why does he do that in the story? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am am showing you the very heart of God and I am showing you how much the father loves you because I am the older brother that this older brother was supposed to be who stayed home and griped about the father, the son being brought home. The father has sent me. His beloved son, whom he loves with his whole heart, he has sent me to come and to stand in your place to bear the wrath and to be cast outside of the circle of God's love and acceptance. And... Um, to give you my place and to take your place and to bring you home. 
This is the heart of the Father. When we look at, when we look at Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, um, uh, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament commentator, I've, I've mentioned him a bunch in this series, um, he says this of Adam in Genesis 3. He says, um, his way back is more than hard. It is resisted. He cannot save himself. Um, and that's exactly what we see with the plight of Adam, with the plight of Israel. Um, I want to read, I wanna read uh, just a short, a short line from George Herbert and then a longer one by John Newton. George Herbert says this. He says this of what Christ ultimately came to do, which is to bring us back, but what? By doing something that Adam couldn't do and that Israel couldn't do. God sent his own son, okay, his precious, prized, not creation, but son, uncreated, to us, okay? He came not to a garden land like Adam came to and like Israel was put into, but he came to a wilderness, to darkness, John 1 tells us. The light of the world came into darkness because of our sin. Our sin had made of the whole creation a dark place in a wilderness. And he came and he was tested in that wilderness and he obeyed the law of God like Adam did not. To the letter, from the heart. Because he trusted the Father. And like we haven't, like Israel didn't. And like we haven't. We flouted God's law, but Jesus came and he obeyed it. Okay? And then in a garden, he was also tested on the matter of a tree, on the matter of a tree. And the tree was a cross. And, the, and throughout the Bible, the, tr- the cross is called, at various points, a tree. But to him, it was a tree of death. It was a Roman instrument of torture. To Adam and Eve, it would have been a tree of life that they, were, they would have been able to take from if they had obeyed. But they were cast out. Jesus, rather than being given a tree of life, was given a tree of death. And rather than saying no to it, he said yes. And through taking what we owe God through being cast out in our place and hung on that Roman gibbet, that crucifixion torture um, um, instrument, that tree of death to Jesus, what we deserve, became a tree of life to all who look to him. Um, This is what George Herbert said. He said that he's talking in in the place of Jesus here. So imagine Jesus speaking. Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see, Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me, was ever grief like mine. And again, on the cross, a bit longer, but it's beautiful. This is the author of Amazing Grace, among other, among other things and hymns, John Newton. He, he wrote this. In evil long I took delight. By the way, he was a slave trader. Um, he was about as bad as it gets. In evil, so he knows of what he speaks when he says in evil. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I the Lord have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. 
I die that thou, that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death, my sin displays in all its blackest hue. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. So this is what for Jesus was a tree of death. He took it so that it might become a tree of life for us. Otherwise, we would have had to take it. He stepped, he stepped in our place. Um, and when Jesus died, why did I spend so much time on the, on the cheruvim, on the cherubs? Okay? Well, because they symbolize in a real way, but in so many ways, what we want back into, but of our own can't get back into. What happened on that tree of death, which is a tree of life for all who look to Christ, hanging in your place? What happened the minute he breathed his last and said, um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What's the first thing that happened that's recorded? That curtain, that wall that I described that separated the holy place in the temple from the holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year was torn from top to bottom. It was torn. It was so thick that no man could have torn it. And if he had, it would have been bottom to top. But top to bottom, it was torn. It was laid wide open. And that curtain had the two cherubs on it. In other words, the way, the east way of the garden Okay, and the entrance to the temple was on the east, by the way. Okay, the, through the east gate, okay, and then through the east door into the temple. That way, that access to God that only one person once a year in exactly the right way, okay, through blood could enter was blown open. The entry to the garden back to what God made us for, getting into that inner ring was made fully accessible by the death of Jesus Christ for any and anyone and everyone who comes but through him by faith. Um, Derek Kidner again says this. He says, at the death of Christ, this veil was rent in two. That's Matthew 27, 51. And the way to God was thrown open. I love that. Jesus' death on the cross threw open the door wide through him hands outstretched for us. And his resurrection vindicated that that payment was enough for you and for you and for all who look to Jesus, okay? Um, that's in Hebrews 10 if you wanna read more about how that way to God was thrown open. Um, at Christ, so let's fast forward three days to his resurrection. At his grave site, he was buried in a garden and there were two guards stationed there by the stone that barred entrance of a dead man, as it were, a dead man into this garden place, okay? But what did he do? He blew, on, on that third day, when he rose from the dead, having made sufficient payment for you and for me, that, that stone was moved completely aside, was blown open, as it were, and those guards fell down as if dead. And he entered as what? What does Paul say? The second Adam. Adam just means human. He entered into the garden again as the second human, representing you and me, recreated with the spirit of God inside of him. And who's the first person that he saw that he met with in that garden? A woman, Adam and Eve, as it were. Jesus, his death and his resurrection isn't just a guy dying and rising again. It's the beginning of a new creation that you are called to be a part of 
through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? In other words, if you're in Christ, if you're outside of Christ, part of me hates to burst this bubble for you, but it's better that I do it now. Nothing you do matters. Worse than that, actually, okay? Because it's all just gonna end either in a heat death and worse, God's judgment. You will bear the penalty for everything you have done or left undone before a just and holy God, okay? But if indeed you are in Christ, and if what we are told is true in the scriptures, if this has happened and he has begun a new creation and paid the debt that we couldn't pay and paid it all, and then he has brought us back into the garden and started a new thing, everything that you do in Christ, everything, it all matters, okay? We've been, we've been recommissioned. C.S. Lewis coming back um, as we wind down, before a few points of application, in his, in his um, memorial lecture, The Inner Ring, toward the end of it, he says this. He says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, which, hey, drives so much of what we do, if we're honest. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And I just wanna suggest to you and tell you with as much confidence as I have that you will never get in to satisfy your deepest needs. You will never get into the ring that you need to be in to satisfy you until you let Jesus take you in to the ultimate inner ring, which is the Godhead itself. God made you for himself and your heart will be restless, restless until it rests in him. And when you let him take you in there, the ultimate insider who became the ultimate outsider to bring you in, to the counsels of God and to the love of the Father, um, you will be restless um, and you won't be able to conquer that fear of being an outsider because you will be an outsider. But in Christ, that fear can be conquered and you can begin to be someone who isn't scrapping um, to try to get into anywhere because you've already been brought in. You don't have to prove yourself anymore to anyone. Through no good of your own, through the work of another, his grace and his love for you you've been brought all the way in. And so you can let your life just be a giving away of, you don't have to contend anymore for validation. You don't have to contend anymore for self-worth because God has said in Christ, this is how much I love you. This is how much you're worth. And so we can just simply let our lives be an expression of that to other people and of praise back to God. Only in Jesus can we conquer this fear the ultimate insider became the ultimate outsider to bring you and me outsiders in. Um, and, and see, I, I once heard somebody say, the church is the only institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. We who have been brought in through no good of our own, we have this message in our hearts and on our lips, nobody's too far outside. We don't work to try to keep people out of something we've been brought into because it was through no good of my own that I was brought in. It was through the work of another. He hung on the cross in my place and he died and re-entered the garden and says, come along with me, in me. I'm your leader. Abide in me. Follow me. Be with me. Know me. And bring as many people in as you can. And so as a new humanity, just like Adam was given a commission to fill the earth with God, to fill the creation with God's image, so we are given a new commission by Jesus Christ, right? The great commission. He says, go and tell everyone you can this message 
that you can't be too far outside. I am the elder son that God has sent to get anyone who will come to his senses back. And in fact, the more outside you realize you are, the better placed you are to come running home. It's, if you're content in the ring that you're in, there's no hope for you until you reach a certain amount of discontentment and come to your senses, okay? You won't be satisfied, I assure you, friend, until you come back into the love of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Um, and what's ahead for us? To quote a local son, a local poet, Robert Earl Keane, uh, he's one of my favorite uh, country western artists. He says, the road goes on forever and the party never ends. Um, am I applying this to the gospel somehow? Yes, I am. That is, literally, that is literally what awaits us. No matter how dark it is now, we've been given everything in Christ and what we're promised, we're about to go to table, is a feast in him that never ends. What we, if we cast ahead to Revelation, to the end of the Bible, what we're shown is that he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's gonna make everything sad come untrue. He's going to bring a city down. We've gone from a garden in Genesis all the way to a city. And the kings of the nations are gonna bring their wealth in. And there's not gonna be a sun or a moon because God himself in person will be our light. And there will be feasting and there will be fellowship and there will be adventuring and exploring and building and communion. Everything that's good on this earth that you see constantly running away from you. My son this weekend was like, why does every good thing have to end so fast? It's like, dude, that is a great question. And the answer is because we live in a broken world, but it's not always gonna be that way. And the Bible tells us that the, the party, just the faintest shadows of the party have started, but there's gonna be a point in time when he returns at which it's going, he's gonna cut the tape as it were. And the road goes on forever and the party never ends. That's what Christ is gonna bring us into. Um, so, okay, in closing down, just a few, a few points of application to hang your hat on. Um, so what, okay? We've been expelled, but Christ has brought us back into the garden. Uh, he did what Adam couldn't do and what Israel couldn't do, and only he, okay? You can't clean yourself up. You can't save yourself. You can't get past those cheruvim by yourself. He tore the curtain. Come in him by faith and just come and feast and come and be with him. Um, so, so what? So like I said, in Christ, we've regained this commission through which we ought to be a people who are heading somewhere toward a garden city where the party literally is never gonna end, but who also are inviting people along to say, look, you've been searching all your life, casting about to get into these inner rings, but there's this company that you were made for and it's the company of God and his people. And there's only one way to get there and it's through the work of Christ Jesus. So come, 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 come. That is our message. That's, that's the gospel. Um, okay, but also because you have been brought into this ultimately exclusive inner ring where now the wall's just been broken down through Christ, um, three quick things. You will no longer need to be, uh, you will no longer be a dangerous person. When you are trying to get into these inner rings, even if you don't realize it throughout your life, you're constantly trying to, you're doing, doing whatever it takes to get there, break rules, hurt people, doesn't matter. And then once you're in, you try to do, you'll do whatever it takes to keep people out because of your great insecurity. But that's been totally destroyed because of Christ, because we've been brought in through the work of another. So we, we're no longer needy because we're given full admission into the inner circle and we're validated. This is how much God loves you. And there's nothing, 
you've done to earn it. And so we are no longer the dangerous people that uh, are less and less should we be that way that are trying to get into these inner rings and trying to keep other people out. But secondly, you will become a dangerous person. That is, because we've been brought in and we don't have to worry about like sort of keeping other people out, um, we will be outward, instead of being inward focused and am I, am I good enough and, and, and is, what if this person comes in and pushes me out? There's none of that anymore. So we become people who are just outward focused. We're concerned about bringing other people in, seeing other people rescued in the name of Christ. Um, we become outward focused, uh, focused on a single mission, um, on loving God and loving others and seeing outsiders brought in. Okay, so we become in that sense dangerous people. So we will no longer be dangerous in one sense, but in another sense we'll become dangerous. But also lastly, last thing here, this is a very sort of narrow focused point of application, but um, your work will become sound. That seems strange and attenuated and not related. This is actually the way C.S. Lewis ends his lecture. Your work will become sound. What do I mean by that? Um, Forgetting about gaining access to a club of people will keep you from expending all this energy and emotion and time on trying to get in and trying to keep other people out. And you'll just put your head down and you'll do the thing that God has given you. And you'll do it well and better and better because you're not trying to get validated by what you're doing or by who you're with anymore or what club you're in. You've been brought in to the counsels of the living God and you can't lose that love and affection because of Jesus. And you'll lift your head up after years of having it down and just doing good work and doing what's in front of you and inviting other people in and worshiping in just whatever task is at hand that God's given to you. And you'll lift your head up and you'll realize that you are through that good work, you become someone who's excellent at what you do, a person of integrity, um, a person of humility, who actually is in the inner ring because of your excellence and your skill and your integrity, but you haven't been trying to get there, okay? So it's actually ironic how that works. Um, and so you, your work will become sound and you will become more and more a sound person as you realize that you have been brought in to the ultimate inner ring through the work of another. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. Jesus has done it. Come to him and invite other people in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that expulsion from the garden was not the last word. You were in a garden, offered the choice of being expelled in our place, and you said yes. You said yes to the tree. Um, And it was a tree of death for you, but because you were nailed to it of your own will, uh, it's become a tree of life for us. And you bring us into a new place and a new garden. And so I just pray that if anyone is outside of you, Lord, hear me. I know that you hear me because of the work of Jesus Christ by your spirit. If anyone here in this place, in the sound of my voice, whether here or in the, in, if, if you're listening later, is outside of the, the work and the person of Jesus Christ, has not been brought in by faith to the ultimate inner ring, I pray that you would bring them in right now. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would do what none of us can do. You would draw them into your heart and that you would send them out with rejoicing, telling as many people as possible until the day they draw their last breath about the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. He has done what Adam and Israel could 
not do, what we cannot do. He has brought us into the heart of the Father who's made us for himself. So we bless you. We love you. We look forward to the, the feast that is literally going to have no end as we come to this table now. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.